Would it be all right if I now had on a dress and nail varnish? Please don't answer out loud. But it is a genuine question for you to answer in your head. If I each Sunday came and preached wearing a dress, would that be fine or just a bit odd or actually wrong? I hope you've got an answer in your head. The answer is it would be wrong. And if I persisted in doing that each Sunday, the elders would have to take action about me and remove me. And if I then took them to court for unfair dismissal, I suspect I'd win my case. Because our society would say, that's part of your freedom. You're free to do that. Now, by the way, I have no intention of wearing a dress or nail varnish, and I have no intention of taking the elders to court, so don't worry, please. But I'm trying to illustrate that what we do as men and women matters. And I meant to say, actually, back at the beginning, do remember men in Bible times wore robes. They wore robes that looked much more like dresses than like trousers. Sorry, I forgot to say this bit. So there's no inherent or biological reason why men have to wear trousers. So I'm illustrating what we do as men and women matters, and it's more than just biology. It's more than just biology. There are other factors. I'm also illustrating our society has very strong opinions about this and is confused. So we better get some help and clarity from the Bible. Not just on whether I can wear a dress or not, but on bigger, more important issues of men and women and cultural issues that are swirling around us at the moment. So let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For those who don't know, we're in a series. That's why we're here in chapter 11, because the series has brought us to this. It's one of the features of preaching through Bible books. You, have, you can't avoid the hard passages. But we've actually lingered a bit on this hard passage because it, our society has such strong opinions and such confusion on these matters. Tim took us through these verses to explain them to us. Then I applied them to what roles men and women take in the church. But that left some things unaddressed. So today, I want to do some explaining of what's going on in this chapter. That might leave you thinking, that's really odd. How on earth is that relevant to us? So I want to then, secondly, show actually it relates to topics our society confronts us with. And I'm not going to pretend I'm going to go through them thoroughly this evening. I'm just going to comment on some examples. There's my plan. So... First of all, what was happening back then? Before we get to us today, we've got to understand the passage in its context. So what was happening back then? Do you remember, if you've been here regularly, the problem in the Corinthian church? They were like their society. They were too much like their society. And one of the characteristics of their society was, the Greek people said... The spiritual is what matters, not what you do with your body. It's the spiritual that matters, not your body. You can see that in, you might know, the Greeks valued thinkers. They're famous for their thinkers. And they also despised manual work. You see, your body, we don't like the body. 
We've risen above that. We're these spiritual beings. And this attitude had got into the church and it caused problems. For example, the Christian said, I can visit a prostitute and it doesn't matter because that's just my body while my spirit remains pure. No, said Paul in chapter 6, your body matters. So stop being immoral. Then the Corinthians, the married Christians said, we can opt out of married life and sex because that's, we're above all that bodily stuff. No, said Paul in chapter 7, be devoted to the Lord by what you do with your body. Then the Corinthians said, well, we can go and eat in an idol temple and it's no big deal. It's just a bodily activity of no significance. No, Paul said in chapter 10, what you do with your body can be participating with demons or it can be participating with Christ. And then the Corinthians said, as we worship, we are spiritual beings who have risen above such bodily things as what sex we are, male or female. No, Paul said in chapter 11, you are still male or female and you must show that you are not rejecting God's plan for male and female. So, let's see briefly how Paul said that in chapter 11. I'm not going to go through it all or comment on each verse, we've already had that. But, just remind you of a few things. First of all, Paul asserts that being male and female hasn't been abolished by Christ because it comes from God. Verse 12. Verse 12. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. He's reminding them, this is the way God created us, male and female. You might know Genesis 1 verse 27 that links being the image of God with being male and female. He also says being male and female even reflects God. Verse 3. Verse 3. Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is a verse we have to be very careful with and Tim unpacked carefully for us. I'm not going to go through it all. But just to point out this, it means we are not asking which are superior, men or women. We are not asking which are superior, men or women. That is a silly question. That is an invalid question. Because it would be like asking this. If you follow the logic of verse 3, it would be like asking, which is superior, God the Father or Christ? And the answer is neither. They are both equally God's. But God the Father leads and Christ has willingly put himself under his Father's leadership. And so also in the family... And in the church, which is God's family with family-like characteristics, leadership is to be by certain men. Not all men, but by certain men. And then, having established those two big principles, most of verses 4 to 16 are about this difference between men and women must show. We're not to hold to it in principle, but we try to obscure it because visitors coming in might think we're odd. It must show. 
It must be clear the church is not rejecting God's created order. How must it show? In chapter 11, how must it show? Well, verse 4 talks about having your head covered. And verse 4 says that men shouldn't when prophesying or praying. And verse 5 says women should when prophesying or praying. Having your head covered. Now, what on earth is that about? Well, actually, it is very difficult to tell what it's about. I have to be honest. It's very difficult. And I don't know if this disappoints you or not. I'm not going to say for definite what it is about this evening. I am going to say some definite things, by the way. But the, the word here means the word here means something covering the head, or it means something hanging down from the head. Or later in the chapter, there's a different word which means something wrapping round the head. What is that? Well, it's very difficult to tell. It could be hair length. Is it saying a woman should have long hair and a man shouldn't? One possibility. It could be tying long hair up. The word for wrapping around the head. You see, for a woman to have her hair down and not tied up, in their culture might, this is an educated guess with a bit of historical knowledge to it, it might have been seen as prostitute-like and therefore a sign of immorality. Or it could be a headscarf wearing some sort of covering over the head, like a shawl, a bit like a hijab. Could be. It's hard to tell. I'm not going to go into details and go through the verses in detail. But here are some things we can be sure about. Okay, it's not all vagueness. There are some things we can be sure about. I'll tell you a few. Here's one. It is not a permanent across all cultures rule that women should wear hats or scarves in church. It is not a permanent across all cultures rule that women must wear hats or scarves in church. How do I know that? Verse 4. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. Every man, it says. What did the Old Testament priest wear when worshipping? A turban on his head. He wore a head covering. What did Jesus wear when he prayed in the synagogue? A prayer shawl over his head. History shows us, it is clear, that Jewish men wouldn't even be allowed into the synagogue without a head covering on. Jesus wore some sort of head covering. And so, verse 4, when it says every man who prays or prophesies with whatever it's talking about here in terms of head covering, cannot be hats or scarves as a permanent rule across all cultures. It can't be. Otherwise, Jesus and the priest were breaking it. Either it's some sort of scarf or head covering like that as the expression in Greek culture of abiding principles, or it's about hair, styles or length. Do you see? I hope, I hope that's been understandable. You've got two options, basically. It's a cultural application then in Greek culture. In their culture, this would have been seen as rejecting male and female roles. Or maybe it's an abiding culture about hair length. 
But it cannot be a permanent rule, women must wear hats in churches. It just can't be. That's one thing we can be sure about. Here's another thing we can be sure about. Hair is relevant. Hair is relevant. Verse 14 and 15. It's straightforward. It's about hair there. It is relevant. Here's a third thing we can be sure about. Culture does affect this. Now, I am not an expert in hairstyles down through history. Surprise, surprise. Uh, But I'm pretty confident that in most cultures there has been a difference between men and women's hairstyles. And in most cultures, women's hair has generally been longer than men. I'm sure there are many exceptions to this, but I think in most it's been that way. But what is seen as men's hair and what is seen as women's hair will vary a lot between cultures. So even if this is an abiding rule about hair length, there will be cultural differences. And if it's about wearing a head covering, then yes, clearly it is cultural. I think I've already shown that. Here's a fourth thing we can be sure about. Fourth thing. What others see matters. That's really One of the main things this chapter is about. It should be seen that we accept God's plan for men and women. It shouldn't be hidden. It should be seen. Okay, well, some of you might be thinking, why on earth are we hearing about this? How on earth is this relevant to me? Or some of you might have spotted already there are some issues here that are very relevant to issues in our society. So I'm going to comment on some of those. And as I said earlier, I'm just commenting on them. They're big issues. I'm just prompting you to think. So here's the second section this evening. Second section, some ways this affects us now. First one, sex or gender. If you fill in a form, let's say you're you're applying for a visa to visit a country, or it's the government census back in 2021, or you're... Let's say opening a bank account. You have to fill in a form. And there are boxes you tick. When you tick those boxes, are you telling them your sex or gender? Which one are you telling them? Your sex or your gender? Now you might say, what's the difference? You might have thought gender is just the new word for sex. So we can avoid being a bit embarrassed by using the word sex. Instead we can use the word gender. I wonder if you thought that. If you did, then you've been a bit misled. Because the change from using the word sex to using the word gender is much more intentional than that. And the intention is, it's saying, what matters isn't your sex, male or female. No, we'll we'll brush that aside and instead put the focus on gender. And what matters is your gender. And you can identify as man or woman or non-binary, or gender-fluid, or two-spirit, or 57 other varieties, it's your choice. You can choose. Because rather like in Corinth, our society says, the real you doesn't need to be constrained by your body. But 1 Corinthians 11 says, God made us male and female. And that's a biological reality. And it's a good thing, although sadly it's been affected by human rebellion against God. And so we get muddled up about these things. But it's a good thing. 
your sex wasn't just assigned to you at birth, it was written into your body by your creator. And the best way to live is in line with how God made you. There was a Roman poet called Horace. I know nothing about Horace, except he was a Roman poet, and that he said this. He said, you may drive out nature with a pitchfork, yet she will still hurry back. That's quite a good saying. It's quite relevant today. You may drive out nature with a pitchfork, yet she will still hurry back. And that is still true despite the amazing efforts of modern body modification. And so living in line with how God made you is going to be better than the false freedom our society sells you of. You can be whoever you choose to be. Okay, that's the first one. Here's another topic that's relevant from 1 Corinthians 11. Hair. Now you say, I didn't come to church to hear about hair. No, I don't suppose you did. But... What God says should dictate what we hear. And he tells us about hair in verse 14 and 15. It's only a very small part of the Bible, so we won't spend long on it. But it is in the Bible, so we will spend a little time on it. Hair. How's hair relevant? Let's have a picture up. I I feel like apologising. I really dislike this picture. But we'll have a picture anyway, because I think it will help. There you go. Do you know who that is? That was the winner of Eurovision a few years ago. I don't know his name. I don't know anything about him. But I do know he is using hair and other things to blend male and female. You might be thinking, is that a man or is that a woman? And that's exactly his point. To get you thinking, is this a man or a woman? And then to get you thinking, it doesn't really matter. Because he's trying to break down the distinctions and blend male and female together to make a statement against us being either male or female to confuse our minds. And it is quite confusing, isn't it? So let's get rid of it. Thank you, James. Here's another example. Rosaria Butterfield was an English professor in America. She's a Christian now. I'm not, <laughs> I've made it sound like those two are not compatible. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. There are two good books by her in our library that you can borrow. And when she first went to church, she was in a lesbian relationship. And she had her hair cut very short to make a statement of rejecting her femininity. When she became a Christian, she grew her hair long. Now, I've given you those two examples because I want it to be clear I'm not getting into details of exactly how long or short should your hair be if you're a man or a woman. Not getting into those. That isn't really the issue here, to try to get into details and to try to make rules. is missing the point. I'm just saying hair is not irrelevant. How we present ourselves is not irrelevant. Avoid styles that look like you're making a statement that you reject God having made you male or female. Okay, clothes. Here's the next one. Clothes. Clothes. Do your clothes make a statement rejecting that God has made us male or female? It could be that chapter 11 
It's hard to tell. Is it about hair length or is it about a head covering? Hard to tell, so I'm going to comment on both, the clothing and having commented on the hair length. Do your clothes make a statement? If a woman wore trousers in Britain a hundred years ago, she would have been regarded as making a statement against femininity. If a woman wore trousers in a Muslim country today, she'd be regarded as making a statement. I guess that if a woman wore trousers instead of a wedding dress when she's getting married, even in the UK today, it would probably be regarded as a bit of a statement. If a woman wears trousers in most contexts in the UK today, it's not regarded as a statement at all. It's just a non-issue. It isn't really making a statement, usually. So, we need to think, what statement does the way I present myself make in this cultural context? Culture must matter. It's no good thinking what was going on a hundred years ago or what's going on in a Muslim country. The question is, what statement am I making by how I present myself in this cultural context? But it is quite difficult because it's complicated by this. We must be aware Clothes are one of our society's tools as it tries to overturn distinctions between male and female. Fashions are being used to try to make male and female less distinguishable. So we've just got to keep aware of that and not be naive. Let's think about clothes again a different way. I said that 1 Corinthians 11 could be getting at the Corinthians sending a sexual signal. It could be that hair loose or heads uncovered was what prostitutes did in their society and therefore Paul is saying to them, look, don't look like you're sending a signal of sexual immorality. There are clothes worn in films which if you see them, which is better not to, you know that a sexual signal is being sent. You know the directors have done that on purpose to try to arouse lust. It wasn't an accident. They're dressed like that. There are pictures on the internet, clickbait, that get you to want to click. And clothes are often used to arouse lust and to get you to want to see more. So let's bear that in mind with how we dress. I'm not going to put pictures up on this one as a guide, thankfully. And I'm not going to go into any details. But I'm just going to say, do think carefully. Not, and not to arouse lust and sin in others. It is relevant. We must think about it. We must be careful. Here's the last one. Actions. Actions. I've talked about appearance, but we must think about actions. When I was younger, I heard it said about a church, the women in that church wear invisible trousers. And my young mind got rather confused. How did the women wear invisible trousers in that church? Now, some of you might guess what sort of church it was. The, um, what was going on was this. The women all wore skirts because the church said, you must wear skirts because that's feminine, to wear skirts. But in practice, the women were all in charge in that church. It was ruled by women. The women wore invisible trousers. You see, 1 Corinthians 11 has said what is seen, how we present ourselves, does matter. But more important are the right attitudes and actions. So I want to talk about our actions. 
Now, someone last week helpfully commented that I taught about women's roles in church, but the men were let off the hook a bit, and I didn't say much about men. So I'm going to be one-sided the other way this evening. Okay, so I'm not claiming I'm being balanced here. I'm going to be one-sided just to make up for last week, in a sense. A brief word to the men about actions. Men, be men. There's my brief word. That was brief, wasn't it? Men, be men. I'm afraid I can't be that brief, because then you might say, well, what does that mean, to be men? Does it mean you need to have big biceps, and drive a big car, and be into rugby? If you have all those three, that's fine. I'm not knocking. Having big biceps, that's, that's all right. Having a big car, being into rugby. Is that what it means? What was Jesus like on those stereotypical measures of manliness? Don't know. We don't know anything about him, do we, in terms of those stereotypical measures of manliness? Because they are not the measure of manliness. No, but we do know that he came and did what was difficult to take a lead. That's what we know. He came and did what was difficult to take a lead and take responsibility. Because that's what it means, men, to be a man. Interesting, I think of an Old Testament set of twins. Do you know what set of twins I'm thinking of in the Old Testament? Jacob and Esau. Which one was more manly, do you reckon? Esau, he was the tough guy. He was the hairy guy, wasn't he? He was the hunter. He was his dad's favourite. Jacob was a stay-at-home, stick-with-his-mum, enjoyed-doing-cooking man. Which one's more manly? I reckon Jacob. And I reckon I'm being biblical there. Because although Jacob was a very flawed character, he took much more responsibility than Esau. Oh yes, you could pull me apart because Jacob had all sorts of sins. Yes, but he did take more responsibility than Esau. Esau was a go-with-how-he-felt man, not a take-responsibility man. Jacob was the more manly one. So forget your stereotypes. Although I've said if you've got big biceps, I'm happy for you. But forget your stereotypes. It's about doing what is difficult to take a lead and take responsibility. Well, it's a big subject. I'll just give you two examples. Two examples. First of all, men in the home. In the home. My mother was converted as a child. And she went to Bible college. And she was a missionary. My dad was converted in his 40s. He claimed that he'd never read a book before he was converted. Whether it was strictly no books at all, I'm not sure. But he certainly hadn't read the Bible and he'd read almost no books. And he never took an exam in his life. Became a Christian in his 40s. Got married to my mother. And he didn't pretend that as a man, of course, he knows better than his wife. That would just be silliness. He didn't pretend he must do all of the teaching of the Bible in the family. He knew that his wife knew better than him. He didn't pretend. To pretend that would not be a sign of strength. It would be a sign of insecurity and weakness. But he did know it was his responsibility to make sure his family were taught the Bible. He did know it was his responsibility to make sure in his family God was worshipped each day. And he took that responsibility. 
It's rather like Proverbs. You're familiar with the book of Proverbs? Most of it is written as a father instructing his son. Notice that. The father is taking a lead with making sure his children are taught God's word. But have you noticed one of the things the father teaches his son? He teaches his son, listen to your mother's teaching. He doesn't pretend, well, she's just, she's just for cooking. I'm the one who knows everything. No, he takes the lead without pretending he always knows best. Husbands, are you taking the lead in making sure your home is a place where God is listened to and spoken to daily? Men, be men. Next one, in the church. In the church. When I got to 20 years old, I was in a church anniversary. And the church I was at, in their anniversaries, they'd have this big service and they'd have a time of open prayer in it. And it was a bit dire because no one was saying anything. We were in the big building, not in the little normal prayer room, and everything went quiet and no one said anything. And I remember, at about 20 years old, sitting there thinking, "Mm, should I pray, I wonder? No one's saying anything. Should I? No, it's intimidating. No, it's difficult. I'll probably say the wrong thing. And if I say the right thing, I'll probably do it with the wrong motives. No, it's difficult. And I thought, you're supposed to be a man, aren't you? Aren't men supposed to do what is difficult and take a lead and take responsibility? Now, notice I didn't say women are not supposed to do difficult things. I did not say that. And I definitely did not say women are too weak to do difficult things. But I said men are to get on and take a lead. Thinking about that, that it doesn't mean women are not to do difficult things, Judges 4 is very relevant to this. Do you know what's in Judges 4? If you're familiar with the book of Judges, which judge is it likely to be that I'm thinking of that's in Judges 4? You might... You might be able to guess which one. It's the story of Deborah. What did Deborah do? She led Israel into battle. She was strong and she led. There's another woman in Judges 4. Do you know who it is? Very interesting character. She's called Jael. She was a clever woman. She got, one of the, she got the commander of Israel's enemies to come into her tent and have a rest and fall asleep. And while he was asleep, she drove a tent peg through his head. And those two women are commended in the Bible. There's not the slightest hint that they were in the wrong. They shouldn't have done it. No, no, they are commended. They are held up to us as good examples. That blows apart some stereotypes. But why did Deborah and Jael have to do that? Because the men were not stepping up to the mark and taking the lead. And it was a dishonour to those men. It's stated. It was a dishonour to those men that the women had to do it because the men were not stepping up to the mark. Quite right for Deborah and Jael to do it, but they shouldn't have had to because the men should have stepped up to the mark and taken the lead. Men, let's step up to the mark and take responsibility in the church. Now, I don't pretend that was a complete dealing with any of tonight's subjects. Uh, Think of it more as some prompters to get you thinking on a few ways 
that 1 Corinthians 11 applies to us today. Please bring any questions and any thoughts you'd like to share about that to the elders. I will resist the temptation to rush off when this is finished. Please do bring your questions, any thoughts you'd like to share. Let me finish with this very briefly. Genesis 3 verse 16 indicates that down through history there will be trouble and sin in this area of male and female. And it's happened. Male and female relationships have been spoiled from both sides. Probably historically, mostly by men oppressing women. That's a bit of a guess. Probably mostly that way round. Our society is understandably trying to correct that. But it's making a mess of it. It's causing an awful lot of confusion because it's rejecting the words of Jesus. We need scripture as our guide. And it's rejecting the work of Jesus. We need him to reorder our rebellious hearts that don't submit to God's ways. So let's honour Jesus. Let's honour his words and let's honour his work by showing in our lives that we've got something better, something better than our society and our culture has in this area of male and female and how men and women relate. Let's pray for that now. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is practical and relevant whether in 1st century Corinth or 21st century UK. Please, Father, help us to honour our Saviour by showing his way in every area of life is better than what our society promotes. Please, Father, give us confidence in his way. Give us your spirit in our hearts so we're able to walk in his way. And give us wisdom to work out in the details and in practice what his way is. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.